getting a little getting closer. A little closer. Yes. Um, welcome, guys. Monday night, generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter, and we have some very important things to discuss this evening. Yeah, and what's what's interesting is is that you won't really find this in the mainstream media. If you look, you will find it. Like it's not like it's it's um, not factual information, but it is certainly not being covered to the extent that it should. But there is a group of attorneys and journalists that have filed lawsuit against the CIA and Mike Pompeo for a violation of their constitutional rights at various times um, when they visited Julian Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy in the United Kingdom. And so this is what we're going to be talking about tonight. I think it's really important. And this case is not one of those far out there things. This already has a judge assigned to it and is being taken very seriously. And as soon as I saw that this was happening. I'm like, okay, I have to dig deeper into this and, um, you know, try to figure out who can we have come on and talk about it. And sure enough, um, Nathan Fuller, who has been on before, is somebody who is very well aware of what's going on with this case. But again, no, you would not see anything about this if you were just, you wouldn't nope. even know this was happening. And this is a serious, like, constitutional violation situation. Um, this is a problem. This is like a Fourth Amendment problem. And I think that, uh, we're, yeah, I, I don't think people really pay enough attention to this, but this is important. So we're going to be talking about it. I like monarch butterflies. That's my contribution to this. Um, I like monarch butterflies. Yeah, you have monarch butterfly earrings. That's the only reason I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't even, I Talk like, about totally being like. I'm like, what? Totally, un, un, totally <laughs> not self-aware. So oh, Okay. Uh, are we waiting for Deborah? I believe. I think so. I think yeah. so. But we, you know, I mean, we can we can start. But yeah. um, we can start. So um, the, as soon as I saw that this case yes, was you going did, on, Mario, you missed. It. You did too late. Yeah. Um, Special like when, share, get it out. There. When I saw that this case was happening, I you know looked into the, like there's like four main plaintiffs, and then there was a press conference last, like not that long ago, there was a press conference about this. And I saw clips of it. Again, this isn't something that we're just getting. Like I, you wouldn't know if you weren't looking for this. So we're gonna find out about this case. Um, and I have no doubt that there was a lot of rights violated. This would not surprise me in the least bit, so. Well, we do not exactly have a, we don't have a constitution that responds to the will of the average person in this country anymore. So. Well, the Patriot, Patriot Act essentially got rid of four, five, and six. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Nobody even read it, by the way. I remember reading it. It was grotesquely long. And I remember reading it. And all of these people just were signing it. Yeah, and you, didn't mean like read Judge, it. you mean like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden? Yeah. And they're just signing it. And I'm and I remember at the times I was clerking in um, San Antonio for a federal judge. And so I was definitely con law geeky. And I'm and I'm reading this and I'm thinking, yeah, this seems to not be in sync with our fourth, fifth and sixth amendment rights. I I was looking at it like "Mm, this isn't so kosher to me. So but there you are. So that's what we're going to be talking about. So without further ado, he is in I guess you would say is uh, responsible for the Assange defense as part of the Courage Foundation and an organization that we think very highly of and has done really, really great work. Um, These are the people that protect whistleblowers and fight for whistleblowers. Well, again, there's a lot of things that we say and a lot of things that we do that don't just go with the flow. 
um, or go with the rage mob. These are the things that need to be said, especially at times when everyone is trying to find a way not to say it and say, well, this is just an exception to the rule. As soon as you're okay with the exception, then it becomes the norm. And that is what we have to avoid. So yeah. without further ado, Nathan Fuller, welcome to Generational Change. Hi there. Great to great to be here. Thank you for having us. And I too am a big fan of Monarch Butterflies. So oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't even like I put them on before. I wasn't paying attention, and then you know it's not like I sit here and look at my own earrings. So it's like I don't know. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for it took coming. Me a minute on. also. Yeah. Okay. okay, you were all right. So yeah. um, you know, please go get back to like the beginning of all this because this is something like this is the first time that I was hearing about this was whenever that was like a week or so ago and it just sort of came up and this is not something most people even know is going on and it's very very important so can you you and and how are you involved are you one of the plaintiffs in this so I'm not a plaintiff myself um, but I can kind of give some context and background um, so in 2011 uh, Julian Assange, well, so in 2010 and 2011, WikiLeaks published um, the these biggest leaks and uh, news stories that um, have been, the U.S. government has been hounding him for ever since. Um, the Iraq and Afghan war logs, the State Department cables, uh, Guantanamo detainee assessment briefs, um, and opened a grand jury investigation in 2010. Um, and, and so... He was basically on the run uh, ever since uh, and seeking, knowing that he would uh, be facing extradition to the United States. Uh, he sought political asylum and was given that by Ecuador. And so he stayed in the Ecuadorian embassy in London from 2012 until he was arrested in 2019. Um, but during that time, there was a, a shift in the Ecuadorian government um, there, from the left-leaning Rafael Correa to the right leaning uh, Lenin Moreno. And that was in 2017, which was shortly after Trump took office. Um, and Mike Pompeo was then CIA director. And th these things coinciding uh, led to this um, to this spying operation. So um, Mike Pompeo basically had a personal vendetta against Assange. He was extremely um, aggressive in an in initial speech he gave, um, calling WikiLeaks a hostile uh, non-state intelligence service. Um, just trying to create this new term, actually, of information brokers, basically trying to treat journalists and their sources as, you know, as bad as spies and traitors and things like that, um, which follows on from the attempt to portray Chelsea Manning as uh, someone who aided the enemy. Um, so this is how they're portrayed. Just anyone who embarrasses the government must be a traitor or spy, um, something like that. So um, the Ecuadorian government... Uh, the rise in, the, in this right-wing Ecuadorian government and CIA um, officer uh, Mike Pompeo taking over led to the security company in the embassy uh, had an agreement with the it's a Spanish security firm. They had an agreement with the Ecuadorian embassy, and they started to get instructions. We learned this from whistleblowers um, to spy on Julian Assange's every conversation. Um, but also to take to you know, when he had visitors, they would take leave their devices at the door and go and have the conversation. And those devices would later be um, uh, surveilled. They would be taken apart and had photos taken of them, information taken off of them. Um, so it's a, just an incredibly invasive procedure to uh, to spy on everyone that he met with. Uh, and that included journalists, doctors, his own legal team. 
Um, but so this lawsuit deals with just the U.S. citizens, um, and this start the initial plaintiffs are four U.S. citizens, two two journalists and two lawyers, um, who had been spied on in the embassy, and they are suing Mike Pompeo because his uh, for Fourth Amendment violations, basically of their privacy. Uh, and so I am here just to kind of give a little context, and because this is just an incredibly important story that needs more attention. Um, and and it didn't get the the kind of TV press that we thought it deserved. And yet this was one of the more covered uh, events in the long Julian Assange saga. Uh, it was picked up by Reuters and some wire services. Um, there were some CNN reporters in the press conference. Um, and yet still, this is where we are trying to get the word out, trying to um, to explain that, that what what's going on here. This is yet another angle that the U.S. government is taking uh, to try to silence Julian. There, this, this also comes in the context of a of the central intelligence agency that planned to, at, at least drew up plans to kidnap and potentially kill Julian Assange while he was in the embassy. Um, so this is just an incredibly aggressive reaction to uh, WikiLeaks' publishing, and, and basically they're they seem not to, uh, they're not going to relent until he's completely silent. So. The only, like, the only thing here that I think of from, like, a legal perspective is, okay, so we're talking about in the Ecuadorian embassy. So we're talking about really what law is what governs there. So, right, like, I would think it would be Ecuadorian, right? But now what you're doing is you're specifically suing CIA and Mike Pompeo, for their violation of U.S. citizens' rights. And my question is, and, and I believe that, and, and Deborah's coming on, is um, an attorney. So maybe she can shed more light on this. Like, I need to kind of geek out on the con law of this. Deborah uh, Herbeck. 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 Welcome to Generational Change. Thank you. Sorry I'm late. <laughs> no, it's okay. No problem. So for anybody, this is Deborah Herbeck. She is one of the... Um, plaintiffs in this case. And you you are an attorney as well. You were over there in, Equi in, in the Ecuadorian embassy visiting Assange at, in a legal capacity, right? That's correct. I'm a media lawyer and I represent a number of WikiLeaks uh, journalists and reporters in some of their uh, media law matters, contracts and things like that. So when did you realize that you were violated? That that this, I mean, other than maybe a suspicion that this was kind of thing that was going on, like when did you know for sure that you that your rights were violated, and before you even could draw the connection between that and whatever the subcontracting agency is with the CIA? Honestly, I think perhaps we were a little naive, but um, I had no idea uh, that the U.S. government was actually spying on us until. Months and months after Julian had actually left the embassy, he was uh, forcibly removed from the embassy and put into uh, Belmarsh Maximum Security Jail in April of 2019. And it wasn't until uh, articles appeared in the Spanish press, El País, uh, that we learned that the guards at the embassy, who we had assumed were Ecuadorian government employees, uh, security guards employed by the government who had given Julian Sanctuary, and so we assumed that they were friendly and they were very nice, um, that uh, we we learned through the El Pais articles that the, uh, that the guards were in fact from a private Spanish security 
company called UC Global, Undercover Global, that had been engaged by the Ecuadorian government um, in early on, 2012, 2013, to uh, provide security services. And then uh, it later transpired, and we didn't learn this again until the uh, reporting in El País, which was based on a uh, whistleblowing from some of the um, guards who weren't happy with how Julian was treated, uh, that, in fact, the CIA had been orchestrating this thing all along. Yeah, it, it, the irony should not be lost that that they would be spying on somebody who they're accusing of spying. Like the, the, the irony of the whole thing is just beyond and, and it's just an it's an outrage. And so where is this case now? I saw that you ha- there's a judge that's been assigned to this case. Yes, we have Judge Codal in the um, Southern District of New York federal court. Um, the papers were just, the complaint was just filed on, uh, August 15th and, um, the defendants have to be served. And there is in fact a preliminary conference that's been, um, scheduled for October 17th, uh, where the judge for the first time meets the parties and gets a sense of what's going to happen with the case. Um, I mean, I, I do need to, there is an irony that they're being accused of spying Uh, But uh, it is the CIA. That is kind of their job to spy. What they're not allowed to do is is um, is uh, illegally search and seize documents from uh, American citizens who have constitutional rights not to be uh, unreasonably. so, yeah, exactly. Um, so, so that's the real issue. It's a little bit of a fine point. I mean, it's of course they can spy. That's kind of. I mean, it's a. If we can just talk about whether that's appropriate, but it's certainly legal for them to spy. It's not legal for the CIA to surreptitiously spy. It's like sort of like eavesdropping without a warrant. It's that kind of level of inappropriate government behavior and government overreach. That's. I would. I would actually argue it's a violation of Julian's, you know, Sixth Amendment. If they want to be, tr- you know, trying him according to our laws, maybe he should be granted our um, our rights. Because would you also? I mean, the fact that you're there in a legal capacity also is obviously there's like a huge violation of privilege that isn't even you, you wouldn't even need to just go after constitutional violation. But that's like a huge violation of privilege. Yes. I mean, right. As of today, um, he there, there is an indictment, but Julian's not in front of the U.S. courts until um He's extradited, which we're obviously hoping won't even happen. Uh, at that point, he, his lawyers can certainly assert a, a violation of their of his Sixth Amendment rights because he will then have such a right well, um, because uh, of the fact that um, Barry Pollock was, you know, and other and Michael Ratner before him, who were his U.S. criminal lawyers, visited him on many, many occasions and were certainly subjected to the same uh, kind of um uh, scrutiny that we were, and additionally, um, his his UK lawyers who were strategizing for an ongoing extradition proceeding that is being, um, yeah, uh, basically it, the US is is asking for that relief, and they're working with the UK government to help us to help the US get that relief. So it's completely inappropriate that they are are, are having any any idea what goes on in private conversations between the attorney client. But this gets to the whole core of the matter, though, is that what is the U.S. government? I mean, Julian doesn't have any constitutional rights right now. He's an Australian citizen. Right. Um, he's he's I don't even know if he's ever stepped foot in the United States. I mean, certainly not since the uh, 
disclosures that we're talking about, um, if ever. Uh, the idea that the U.S. government has any business indicting a foreign reporter for embarrassing this foreign reporter, um, the U.S. government, by uh, just just telling the truth by revealing facts that were leaked by a you know verified newsworthy. I mean, this is what journalists are supposed to do. Uh, they're supposed to tell us the news. It may not be they're they're supposed to be holding the government to account. This, he's doing exactly what journalists are taught in journalism school. They're supposed to do, and this is a crime. We are criminalizing journalism, and I, it just blows my mind that the journalist community isn't up in arms about this. Yeah, for some reason, it's one of those things like, yes, we support these things, except for Julian Assange. You know, it's it's like one of those things that they're just not willing to go out and talk about. And yet once if this happens, like if this actually was followed through all the way and you get a conviction, that's the end of our First Amendment. Like the end. And nobody I don't think and I've been saying this for so many years. It's a huge problem. And this is by no means. I mean, Nathan, I know you could talk about the amount of whistleblowers and the issues that we have in this country regarding that. But I don't know that there's somebody in the past that would um, be identified as a publisher slash journalist um, that that would be prosecuted. Um, That to me is very unique. This would set a precedent. There have been attempts in the past to do it. Um, around in the time of the Pentagon Papers, the Nixon administration uh, attempted to prevent the New York Times from publishing, but this would be um, the first conviction, uh, and we think a conviction is all but all but guaranteed if he is extradited here. Um, so yeah, it's extremely worrying, and um, they have not been loud enough or, or voluminous enough, but there are reporters out there who are saying, this is the kind of stuff that I do every day. This is what gets these big stories on the front page of the New York Times and Washington Post. This is what they would make illegal, this basic reporting that you count on every day. Um, it's just kind of the internet version of a lot of these things, of communicating with the source, encouraging your source to not get in trouble and say, this is what would be in the public interest and what isn't. They're actually attempting to criminalize every step on the of the process, from t- speaking with your source, getting that information, publishing it, uh, every step of the way. And of course, they first prosecuted the, the source in Chelsea Manning. Um, and although she was eventually released um, after seven years, they have the precedent on the books of a 35-year um, prison sentence for her. So the whole point is is absolutely a chilling effect here and to encourage, discourage people from, from following in Chelsea and Julian's uh, footsteps. I just want to pick up on another point that Deb had said earlier about, uh, and that you were talking about earlier about the attorney um, client privilege. And it's. I think it's worth noting this is one of many aspects in which the U.S. and U.K. have colluded to hamper Julian's ability just to participate in his own legal defense. Um, so having these conversations uh, spied on, um, but also the day he was arrested, you know, April 11th, 2019, um, you, so Ecuador allowed U.K. police to come in the embassy and arrest him, forcibly remove him, um, but all of his documents and his computers, his his devices, uh, were actually sent on to the U.S. They, you know, they were just given to the uh, government that is prosecuting him. Uh, so the chain of custody on those uh, broke very quickly, and and so it's basically uh, it's a discovery issue. Having everything, having your uh, opponent's entire legal case, um, you have all the information, everything they want to argue, uh, well ahead of time. And so this process has now uh, gone on for several years. He's been in prison for 
uh, nearly three and a half years. And um, the U.S. has had the upper hand the entire time, and it's just um, attempting to punish him by process, if not eventually by conviction. How much of a premium do you put on two things? Number one, uh, liberals' trust in uh, institutions and the corporate media, which is unbelievably high uh, compared to independents and conservatives. And then the other aspect is uh, how much pull do the Clintons still have at this point? Because this really is in many ways a vendetta on Hillary's part because she believes that Assange is the person maybe most directly responsible for her not winning the presidential election in 2016. Um, but I do think that these uh, two elements play a huge role. Um, you know, she can have uh, and she'll have, you know, a tantrum until she passes away. That's a fact. But there's the other aspect of it, which is there is this sort of institutional acceptance on the part of, you know, liberal politicos that just, you know, they take the CIA's word. Uh, they take the FBI's word. Um, they have rehabilitated George W. Bush, for God's sake. Don't get me um, started. They've gone <laughs> such no. lengths to Masterclass. try to rewrite history in a way that is more suitable for their psyche. Uh, but I do think that there is an inherent danger to how much comfortable liberals and how much say they have in our political arena today. It's not to say that they shouldn't have a say, but from what I've observed... They basically suck all the air out of the room and what they say goes. And they are more or less willing to throw away our Constitution to get what they want. And that's not to say that conservatives and, the, you know, the, the hard right crazies don't have their own part in the, in the process and, you know, throwing our Constitution away. But liberals project themselves to be the smarter of the bunch. And this ain't smart. This, in fact, is as stupid as it gets in, in, in beyond irresponsible. And the potential for Trump to be charged or even his name mentioned around the Espionage Act throws another wrench into all of this because then we have liberals suddenly defending the Espionage Act uh, as some kind of uh, just law that should be carried out. I mean, what I think the, the thing to do is look at the people who are consistent throughout administrations and who criticize this law, no matter who's in, who's in power, which party it is, um, the principle remains the same. This, the Espionage Act is incredibly abusive. Um, the CIA spies uh, illegally. It, uh, the FBI spies and monitors its own citizens. These are, are things that have been carried out by multiple administrations, no matter which party's in power, um, and they should be opposed on their own merits and not, um, they should, that shouldn't change depending on, on who's elected. I think it is worth um, noting on your second point about Hillary uh, just kind of an interesting coincidence here is that the judge that Deb mentioned, uh, Judge Kodal in the Southern District of New York, also was the judge in the DNC case in 2019 when the DNC uh, attempted to sue WikiLeaks and Russia uh, for colluding. And that judge ruled that WikiLeaks was uh, pl plainly within their First Amendment rights to publish these documents. That didn't get a lot of play because of course, it didn't fit the, the Mueller narrative of the time um, when that was basically taking over all discussion of this. Um, but it's incredibly important ruling and it's very meaningful um, that their you know, right to publish was upheld. And so people will, are going to, as you say, complain about the 2016 election forever. That's just going to be a part of it. But it's really worth, worth looking at the fact that the New York Times said that if they got these documents, they would have published them, too. Um, you know, people want a place to put their blame because it means they don't have to self-criticize, of course. So 
Um, I think that's just how that works. And the New York Times did get these documents and they did publish them. And right. the Guardian got these documents and it did publish them. And Der Spiegel got these documents and it did publish them. And it's it's these, uh, yeah, the Iraq war logs in Afghanistan. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, what we're really yeah. talking about is, I mean, what the, 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 the 18 charges in the indictment all have to do with Chelsea Manning's um, releases, the, 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 um, the Afghan war and Iraqi war atrocities by the UK and the US governments that were exposed. None of this has to do with the fact that Hillary was embarrassed by uh, truthful <laughs> disclosures in 2016. I mean, I hate Trump. And if this had any hand in Trump getting elected, that's a, that's a travesty. Um, but it, but everyone else published it. I mean, I, I heard about the... Um, the uh, Pelosi tapes, etc. But I didn't hear about it. I heard it from Rachel Maddow. I didn't go look it up on WikiLeaks. I mean, why is why is WikiLeaks, who happened to have been happened to have been the first to disclose it, uh, the one that's supposedly responsible for bringing down Hillary when when it was the same message was amplified and pummeled on on left wing or supposedly progressive media channels. That's why, if it did have an impact, it had an impact. Not because. Nobody went to WikiLeaks to have a look and see what what the what what dumps they'd done that day. Yeah, so, I think, right. Well, a huge part of this has been um, the Justice Department trying to tie Julian to what Chelsea did and try to make a connection that he told her to do it or he helped her do it or whatever, you know, whatever they're trying to draw this sort of causal link. And they haven't been able to do it, which is why Obama's Justice Department didn't go forward with this, because it's very weak. It's very weak. And so, you know, I, I am hopeful. I am hopeful that Merrick Garland has some semblance of reason. He has seemed to be somewhat reasonable. Um, but it, this is just ludicrous at this point. Like, I can't believe it. But then again, I can't believe I'm still talking about my bodily autonomy. So, you know, th these things never seem to amaze me. But the, I mean, the reality is we need Merrick Garland to actually drop the charges um, we can't be waiting around for Julian to get extradited and then waiting around for a trial and waiting around for hoping that he'll have some defense, which he certainly does. I mean, this is ridiculous. These charges are absurd, but he'll be dead by then. He will. He's not going to make it. His his health is declining. Um, and uh, he's been he's basically been incarcerated for close to 13 years, depending on how you you know count it. Uh, three and a half years. Quite, it's quite extraordinary how long he survived. Let's let's be honest about that. And that's what they're counting on. You know, the, I mean, again, if you look at what transpired, particularly during the Cold War, you know, the intelligence agencies, their goal was to make it look like an accident in any case where they wanted somebody to die. If they're not pulling the trigger, then they're going to do everything in their capacity to make it look like Julian is, you know, maybe dying of natural causes, but it's the cause that they inflicted upon him in order for it to happen. Well, how how when was the last time that you saw him, Deborah? When was the last time that you actually had contact with Julian and, and you know, how was he then? I visited him in September of 2021. So just almost a year ago. I'm going back in October um, of this year. And I visited him in Belmarsh. And um, uh, it's, it's very upsetting. Uh, it, it's extremely upsetting. I mean, he, um, you know, he had a mini stroke around the time of the uh, hearing, extradition hearing. He's very, very pale. He's very weak. He's, uh, I mean, he's a genius. Uh, so, you know, his, his, um, uh, you know, he's able to 
have an intelligent, very intelligent conversation. But I mean, Julian working on like one tenth of normal for him is what most of us would be uh, on double speed. But uh, it was extremely upset. I mean, honestly, the most upsetting visit I had with him was the first visit I had with him after he went to Belmarsh, which was before COVID, um, when he hadn't been in very long. I think it was must have been 2019. Yeah, it would have been in the fall of 2019. He'd only been in a few months, and he didn't yet have the sort of um, – uh, now he's able to talk to people and, um, you know, he's got a few more rights to uh, access, but he was incredibly isolated, incredibly was, they put him in uh, um, uh, solitary confinement um, for, because they didn't, they, he was talking to some of the other prisoners and they didn't like that. They thought they were scheming to get him, for him to get, you know, they were, they, they know he's clever. They thought he was scheming to get out. It was just nonsense. He'd made friends with some Belgian pilot or there was some crazy story. But anyway, he was literally in a fetal position in the, the when you go visit prisoners there, they give you, as a lawyer, they give you a little room, private room so you can have private, supposedly private conversations. And, um, uh, he was literally in a fetal position for the first 10 to 15 minutes of my visit with him. So I will say that when I went back um, in September of 2021, he was markedly better and that was a relief. But he, this has been an incredibly trying uh, time for him. And he's not, he's, he's young, but he's not a healthy guy. I mean, especially through after all, he's been deprived of sunshine, he's a depressive disorder in any event um, by nature. So it, it's been incredibly difficult for him. His extradition was initially blocked by the lower court in the UK on the grounds that uh, extraditing him to the US would trigger his suicide. It's worth a close look at the, that ruling, though, because it actually says the mere ordering of that extradition, not the actually getting him on the plane, just the mere ordering of it is sufficient to trigger uh, a suicide risk that made it, that judge unwilling to send him to the United States. So um, it's ab absolutely incredibly dangerous and if Merrick Garland's, yeah, thinking that he can just wait this out, it's that just puts Julian in, in more danger, and um, and it leaves the charges on the books. These charges should be uh, dropped on, on their own merits, um, but also because Julian is uh, in dire need of, of freedom and and medical care. Yeah. So Nathan, where where is this now in terms of like what people can do to help? Like where is the movement? Where is the defense or, you know, those things? Because, you know, it's one of those things that when things go on for a really long time, people tend to get like fatigued and forget. And I and I just yeah. feel like it's really important to for that not to happen. Absolutely. I mean, this case has been going on for years. It's easy to to not get every single update or think that, oh, it's just gonna drag on forever. But um, this is really a crucial time. He's uh, attempting one more appeal into the UK High Court right now. Um, then the defense, his defense team just submitted its uh, the grounds for appeal, the perfected grounds for appeal on, on what they're seeking. Um, that gives then the government, I believe, just under two months to respond to that. And then we'll hear from the High Court. Um, so here in the US, we want to build up support. Um, we want to show Merrick Garland this is an issue that people care about. Um, we want to make it clear that we actually are worried about our First Amendment and think it should be upheld. Um, so I'm at AssangeDefense.org trying to to rally support, try to um, spread the word. Uh, yeah. Pink Floyd uh, guitarist uh, uh, Roger Waters is currently touring the U.S. and has allow is partnered with yeah, us to allow. Yeah, it's really cool, <laughs> and uh, he puts uh, Assange Defense tables at every show. Um, in the you know in the in the merch area, and we've been getting activists to table at every single show, and so 
spreading the word that way. But please, yeah, get to the website and and get in touch with us. We want to um, to build up support here, and we need it. That's all. I mean, anything we can do to help. Like, I think I, it's this is one of those things that I think about fairly regularly. Like, this is one of those things that's been like I've thought about fairly regularly for it seems like 15 years now. So it, it's just people don't understand how important this is. And it's very scary. And I feel like what we're seeing, and especially with this case that that we're seeing now that that you have, Deborah, it's we're seeing like a very totalitarian fascist regime situation thing going on here in terms of what our government is doing regarding our rights. And it's very scary. And I don't think people understand the gravity of what we're doing here, what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, that's partly why we brought this action is to bring attention to the fact that the government is literally trampling over the most fundamental rights that American citizens have because of their death, you know, their deathly desire to get at Assange. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the reporting of Michael Iskoff and Zach Dorfman and Yahoo News last year, where they, they had, they had 30 uh, CIA or 30 government employees. I'm not sure they were all CIA, but basically uh, one of them on the record as who was a CIA uh, uh, person, uh, basically verifying that the under Pompeo's um, CIA, they were planning to kidnap or assassinate Assange. Um, and that was, you know, that was at the very highest levels, uh, definitely to Pompeo. So this is, this is a personal vendetta. Uh, that and which is interesting because you know you say everyone all governments hate Assange of course Clinton hates Assange Obama probably hated him um, you know but didn't he had more respect for the First Amendment than Trump did so Trump was like doesn't care about the media and went ahead anyway and invited him but uh, you know that's the whole point of what WikiLeaks does is that it, it doesn't um, it's not shy about sucking up to governments I mean governments the world over hate him he's reported horribly on Russia everyone likes to say he's some Russian apologist uh, he. He, he, he exposes the atrocities around the world. He's a peace activist. He's an anti-war activist. And he exposes abuses of power by governments around the world. Right. Yeah, I think we should be building statues like it to honor Julian Assange. Like it's 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 so I feel like sometimes with this, I'm living in a bizarro universe that the exact opposite of what should be happening is what's happening. And it's 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 very bizarre. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how. Um, People like Tom Hanks and a few others were recently making a movie, basically doing Watergate all over again. And the irony of, you know, what Daniel Ellsberg did and how they're trying to equate it as something different than what Assange has done. It's not. Um, but we are living in a different world today where the corporate media conglomerate is unbelievably powerful as a result of the Fairness Doctrine being eliminated, as well as the Telecom Act that was passed consolidation of media power is eons different than it was 50 years ago. And so today we're more or less just seeing it right in our face. Uh, will there be some type of a solution or, you know, some type of, um, and, you know, a, a way out for Julian? Um, we certainly hope that that is the case. But the First Amendment has been severely damaged, uh, regardless of how the sense. Um, and I think that that's something that all too often people, like I said, uh, liberals, particularly very comfortable liberals in urban and suburban dwellings, tend to be, um, they tend to wax poetic about things that they really don't have any understanding about because they base a lot of their decisions on their emotions and not on rational thinking. 
you can hate Julian Assange, but if you hate him past the point of allowing the foundation of our entire government and country as a whole to be undermined forever because you don't like him, then your understanding of whatever you think you know yeah. about you know, the way things work is so far gone and so far lost. And to be honest, I attribute a lot of that to corporate media. I think they play a very big role in this. And it isn't just MSNBC and CNN. Fox News has a huge hand in this too. Uh, they all do. And unfortunately, because they have bought and paid for our media over the past two, three decades, that's why we're standing on the precipice of, uh, of losing everything. I actually think if we still had journalists on any of those places that maybe they would be standing up for journalists. They did. The reality Schultz, is they, those aren't journalists. Those true. haven't been journalists in decades. Yeah, so. You'll see people like Ed Schultz and Phil Donahue, they lose their job for standing up. So that's why we have our show, Small But Mighty. Small But Mighty. But we're fighting really hard to get the Small word out. Small But Mighty, I love that. I just want to, <laughs> if I just, just unpack for one minute, because this makes me crazy. When you say you can hate Julian, um, you may hate Julian, who cares? That's not the point. Uh, that is absolutely true. But I mean, why hate Julian exactly? What is it we know? I mean, who? I love who everybody, everybody has to start by saying, I don't like the guy, but, you know. Because when the Queen Bee says, can't we just drone bomb this guy and people don't even react? No, 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 no but that's, that's not what I'm getting at. My point is that yeah. he's been the victim of the profound character assassination campaign they that started that literally way. the minute. They, they see it as he deserves it. That's how they see it. I, and I've I met tons of that. I know tons of people. We do not. I know. <laughs> No, no. But I, I wasn't criticizing you. I'm just saying that oh, we, no, I'm just trying to make the point that like, we have to actually unpack why we think we hate him, because it's only because we've been told a whole bunch of lies. That's why people that don't like him, they don't know him. I mean, they don't, they don't know when you have any truthful information about him. The people who still think he's a rapist. Yeah, there's people that still bring up the Swedish thing, which and, is, and, and, and which was completely debunked. Like that was completely debunked. Completely that was debunked. Debunked. And there's people that still latch on that. And that's why the media is so dangerous because they'll even put things out there thinking yeah, it might not be true. It might turn out not to be true, but once you put it out there, it's out there and it's very intentional. It's like asking for forgiveness later. You mentioned uh, Dan Ellsberg and the attempt to kind of portray them as two completely different, one good and one is bad. Um, and it's uh, so interesting to talk to Dan, who's uh, 90 years old and more astute than ever is just incredible. Um, but he's very aware of that dynamic and the attempt to use him against Julian uh, and totally repudiates it. He was on yeah. the stand testifying uh, in the extradition hearing and the U.S. government tried to make those same arguments saying, but uh, because it was 30, 40 years ago, it's OK now. It's like it's OK to praise that now. Um, but he says this is just the same thing. This is the, my only regret of the Pentagon Papers was I didn't do it earlier. Um, and he's been waiting for 30 or 40 years to, to find someone else who's who's willing to take that same sacrifice. And then he found that in Chelsea Manning and then Edward Snowden. And so um, he is lionized now, I mean, as he rightfully should be. Um, but people only think that because it's 40 years in the past, it's they're comfortable lionizing him now. It's um, but but he's very aware of that dynamic and, and wants to, to shut it down because it's um, 
it's just completely misunderstanding then and, and he sees that Julian as basically a successor. Well, you mean like 59 years ago yesterday uh, when everyone wants to, uh, you know, every liberal in this country who absolutely wished that Martin Luther King would have gotten assassinated back in 1963 and instead they want to lionize him today. Talk, oh, my God, I love I love Dr. King. Everything in the moment is always so much different than reality. There is this. Um, there's revisionism in history. It's that nostalgia. So many people, have. people have such yeah. nostalgia. Just like, oh, I want to go back to living uh, yesteryear where we had all types of diseases we didn't have any cures for. <laughs> you know, there is this really mis there is this misunderstanding about the realities of life. Like I watched a video the other day of what it's like to live in 1800 and what that was like for the average person living in a very small, you know, cabin, if you will and having to do these daily routines every day. Uh, you didn't have a refrigerator, so you had to basically make your food every day. Going to school, you would go to school with people of all different ages in very crammed classrooms. There was no air conditioning. Uh, that would, you know? that would so, be it for me. So when people talk about all these like, oh, well, if it was only like this, that other thing, no, you have to learn from history. You don't need to repeat history. <laughs> that's, that's the mistake. Because it was so hard for me, everyone else should suffer. All of you should suffer. I have to pay my student loans. You should all pay off your student loans. You say that right now? I, well, it's the lunacy of it. That's oh. like saying, that's like saying, I existed before there was certain medicine. You shouldn't get that medicine. But, like, I think it's the, but I think the good news is, is that a lot of people are really waking up to it. And do I think that Biden canceled a very small portion, albeit one that was very important for a lot oh. of people, amount of student debt, out of the kindness of his heart? No, I think he did it. Because there's a lot of political pressure to do it. Right. Because he wasn't caring. If he cared, he would just get rid of the student correct. debt. And that is what's proven. So when somebody says, oh, he did such a great thing, I'm like, we have no. one, we have 1.9 trillion in student debt. Now we have 1.6, 1.65. Yeah, we really eliminated <laughs> student debt. Let me tell you. Really want to so how, about, how about we bring on some political pressure finally to force the uh, DOJ to think that they have to drop the charges against Assange? Because that's... Yeah. No, this case is not going to be one in the courts. No, uh, it's going to be it's one true. in. In it's political. It's completely political. There's a, exactly. the only reason this is going to change is if there is political pressure. So we need to start re-educating people yeah. about what's really going on here. Absolutely, and people, you need to hold candidates and people accountable. Bring this up. How do you feel? I mean, seriously, make people have to be accountable for their position on this because I think it's really important. But it also, I don't understand why they're not all talking about this in our con. Well, but, I know why. But it also goes to show you, and as much as people think that Trump was really a dictator and that he was just doing everything off the cuff and to the beat of his own drum, he flirted with the idea of pardoning Assange many times, and he never went through with it. Why? Because there are forces in this country that are bigger than Trump, despite what people in his coalition believe. There are people that will tell you that if you do this, it's all over. And that can mean a lot of different things. So to me, it can't be one person. It has to be a political movement where people are not afraid to speak up. And it has very little, if anything, to do with Assange. It has everything to do with the foundational principles of our nation. If you think that you can prosecute a man because you don't agree with what he did, because it makes you feel bad and that you want your retribution, well, that is not how things work if you are trying to live in a constitutional republic, because that's what I live in. And that's what I would like to continue to live in. So we cannot thank you both enough for thank coming you. on the podcast this evening. Guys, please go to AssangeDefense.org. Nathan Fuller, Deborah Herbert, we really appreciate all. We're going to be following this for sure. Yes. So, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. No, we'll have thank you back. Like when there's any news, but we'll definitely want to have you back. 100%. Guys, thank you for what you do. Thank you. Well, thank you.
soon. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. That's funny. What is? What is it? Mario. Oh, okay. Oh, Brian Alka-Seltzer. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. So that was really good. That's informative. And I'm glad that we are putting this out there. I haven't seen anybody else um, in our sort of peers group talking about this. Maybe they weren't aware. I wasn't aware. So guys, anybody out there in left wing media or any even central media, Osiris stuck in the middle. Um, this is a very important uh case. This is a very important thing that's going on. Credit to Jordan Sheraton. Status quo always covers this uh, very extensively. But again, uh, and, you know, Crystal Ball, Kyle Kalinske, big channels. They've done their part, but it takes more than just the Well, I haven't seen story. anybody covering this lawsuit. Yeah. I haven't. I haven't seen yeah. any of them talking about this. And I do agree. Normally, like Kyle gets on the Assange issue. Yeah, so if really you guys, need to yeah, you guys need to be talking about this case. How about that big, how about that big podcast guy out in uh, California who claims to be uh, <laughs> of and for the people, you know, he used to care a lot about Can talking not, about, but just saying. He's just, I'm that's just not saying. at all. That should absolutely about. have been the case. But as we know that our civil liberties are not exactly being protected anymore, neither is our electoral integrity. But let's let's okay. This needs to be talked about from a couple of different angles because we have well, multiple angles. We have multiple angles. Well, so on the one hand, what people are really aware of is all sorts of voter suppression, um, gerrymandering, all sorts of issues with different supervisor of elections and secretary of states, and there's no shortage of electoral problems. But right. Like that's Right. And we talk about that. And that is very important because people don't trust the process. And given that we are in Broward, we understand why. Um, but in addition to the process um, of the election, where we see so, so many issues that we question the integrity of the process, what we also have is a partisan issue. And that means that the electoral system, the democratic system within the Democratic Party is not so democratic. And we obviously know this firsthand. Um, anybody who dares to challenge any sort of incumbent in the Democratic Party is ghosted and shunned. The idea of a, honestly, the Democratic Party might as well not even have primaries because they really do, unless there's an open seat, they do not like challenges to incumbents and they will all get in line even if that person isn't the best person for that job. And I think that is mostly based on fear. They're scared of that incumbent, whatever power that person has, whatever money backing that person has. But none of these people are putting their neck out to sort of stand up for the principle of democracy. We did. We did. And we we pay a price on a regular basis. But I I am very sort of, you know, glad that more people are taking note of this. And locally, this is a huge issue here. It is. But it's an issue that is ultimately going to be the downfall of the current machine that's been in place for well over a generation. Yeah. And because we dared to challenge it in the first place and have others have followed along this is not just a circumstance where this is just anybody who decided to run. This is much bigger than you think. She is a former two-term county commissioner and mayor of Broward County who just ran to be the next state senator of State Senate District 32 here in South Florida. Which is my Senate. It's yours too, right? No. You cut off. You're the, I'm the cutoff is not Hill. That's correct. Yeah. So this is my Senate district. And a lady that you voted for. I did. Dr. Barbara Sharif, welcome to Generational Change. Hi, thank you for having me. 
Hi, it's nice to finally meet you. I, I never had a chance to meet you. And um, we were definitely of the ghosted faction of people in the 2020 election cycle. And, you know, most people still won't affiliate with us. So thank you for coming on. But why don't you talk a little bit about what your most recent experience was in dealing with uh, the Democratic Party in Broward and running in a primary? So really, what, what was interesting about the statement that you just made was I was actually running in an open seat and an incumbent chose chose to run in that seat um, and just really, um, you know, villainized me and tried to isolate me from others. Um, this all started off with threats. So first it was threats to get out of the race. Um, uh, then it was threats to elected officials and friends and people who were supporting me. And then it got real nasty, um, in July, you know, toward the middle of July, where I had seven attack mailers sent to my district, pretty much labeling me a criminal, um, saying that I committed fraud and um, trying to destroy my integrity and my reputation. What I thought was crazy about it was it was the Senate minority leader doing this. And no one ever stepped up to say, hey, that's a black woman who has built a successful business, who employs 500 people, who's a mother of three girls, who, you know, I I'm a medical professional. <laughs> I have an active license to practice in the healthcare arena. And all of us know in Florida, you can't do that if you've been arrested or jailed or, or done any of those things that I was accused of. So uh, I labeled it. Well, you know, Barbara, you're, you're automatically suspect if you're a black woman and you're like self-sufficient and successful yeah. and know how our local paper uh, the, the Sun Sentinel rag that I won't give the time of day, how they decided to portray um, now Congresswoman Sheila Sherfless McCormick when she actually was able to fund her campaign. And what's so fascinating to me is they don't think twice about getting behind candidates that take corporate money. But you dare have somebody that's able to finance their own race. And they really did put this sort of hint out there like, oh, it was a dog whistle. It, it, it was really, dog it was whistle. bad. No and I feel like to some extent, that's what you're talking about. It's like, okay, so if you're successful and you're a black woman, then we just can't reconcile those things. That just can't be so. And it's, it's, it's pathetic, really. So as, you know, as, uh, as I've gone through my political career, I noticed that um, in certain races in the Democratic Party, um, you never get written about in a positive way. I, I declared to run for this seat back in March, and I can't tell you how many times all of these newspapers, whether it be the Sun Sentinel or the whatever, the Miami Herald actually was the only newspaper that I ever got a fair shake from in this whole time. Um, and then, of course, you know, you had this, this paper called the Florida Politics that I, I truly feel that was being paid to just write negative things and try to um, uh, impugn my reputation. But I, I, I was so shocked that nobody could write something positive and um, have, have it out there. So first of all, I, I was mayor twice of the county. I served on the county commission from 2010 to 2022. 
January uh, 11th, 2022 was my last day on the county commission. But I served as a Miramar city commissioner and vice mayor prior to that. And I did so much in my 13 year and years in elected office that my opponent hadn't done in her little six years in in elected office unopposed. Um, And I served in national positions for the National Association of Counties on the Water Resource Board, 13 years in transportation. I was the first African-American female president of the Florida Association of Counties in its 87 year history in the state of Florida. And I got absolutely zero credit for anything that I'd ever done. I, I led the, I was the chair of the Broward County Task Force for the opioid lawsuit. Why do, you think this is, like, why do you think that the Dem clubs and the and like our DEC and I mean, let's be real. This is a very kind of clicky, not particularly welcoming. Uh, this is why I think that they're bound to lose, because when you don't have fair primaries, you don't get to really um, make people feel enthusiastic about coming out to vote when they feel like somebody was just handed to them. So I think there's a lot of problems. But how were they with this? Like, uh, were you being ghosted by the Dem clubs? Were they because you had declared to run for this before Lauren was even in this seat race? Right. Correct. I ran for District 35. She was in 32. She chose to get out of her seat in 32 to come down to 35. Um, she didn't want to prim- primary against Dr. Osgood. So she chose to get out of that seat. As the Senate, my, my jo- a minority leader, she could have run anywhere. Look at all the seats we had open. She, uh, Pizzo oh, yeah. was elected unopposed. Uh, Greco, who they told to go into the seat where Pizzo was supposed to be, he, he dropped out because he didn't have money to run. All of everybody could have been elected and we could have had one more minority in Tallahassee with this seat. But instead, she chose to make a different choice and come down here and run. I, I didn't have a problem with being primary. That's the democratic way. But they villainized me from the start with this whole rumor about how my running was hurting Democrats and my running was taking away money that she could have used for other people. Look, she spent five million dollars running against me. A state Senate race. First of all, going to take up a collection for Lauren Book as far as money is concerned. That's the thing. I mean, million dollars for a $30,000 a year position in the Senate where we could have worked as allies and then turned around, trashed me and then said, oh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry it had to be this way. And by the way, she should have called me on election night. I said, excuse me. I should I, I should call somebody who's been trashing me, who I sued because they're trying to ruin my reputation. I'm not calling her. I'm in an active lawsuit. That was the most, this whole thing has been idiotic from the beginning. And I said it, it was asinine. Some of the stuff that they talk about, some of the stuff she says makes no sense whatsoever. Um, You know, from from the time that I started running in this race, I knew that, you know, it wasn't gonna be something that was an easy race, but I never expected that, um, she would be spending $5 million and then blaming me and saying I shouldn't run. Um, I had people from her campaign standing up and saying to me things like, uh, you lost in the congressional race. You're, you know, so people don't like you enough to, to elect you, um, that you shouldn't run for anything else. I thought, wow, 
That's amazing to hear from the Democratic Party and people involved in the party at such a high level because um, Barack Obama ran for Congress and lost, ran for state Senate and won, for U.S. Senate and won, and then turned around and, and became president of the United States. There's no Democratic president that has run for office and not lost. I mean, I didn't understand the rationale behind any of that. So. I feel like the Democrats really, like, really um, sold you out. Like, I, I feel like you have been somebody that has been in the arena here for a really long time and has, has a record that you can stand on. And the fact that they just completely, not that I'm at all surprised. Um, I feel like, and then I see all the pictures, of course, that all the, I mean, look, we have our own issues with a lot of those people. But when I see them posting pictures at the Lauren Book uh, watch party and how they're all so excited and all high-fiving each other. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, these are heads of our Democratic clubs that absolutely have no regard for the primary process whatsoever. And it's disgusting to me. And I can, look, you had the head of Broward Young Dems, you had the head of the Dolphin Dems, you had all of those people all standing there and all happy like their candidate won. Wake up, people. You weren't entitled to really have a candidate until after the primary. And certainly, yes, we vote for who we vote for, but they shouldn't be promoting that as part of the party. It's really not proper. Isn't it disturbing? Not only that, but I was excluded from meetings. I was not invited to meetings where they invited my opponent to. Um, I forwarded everything I got to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, And then when I called to say, hey, you know, like, what's going on? Why can't I be a speaker? No response back. Some of them just flat out said, no, I couldn't because they had their schedules full. Um, Speaking events, rallies, things like that. I mean, like, I thought that the the level of disrespect was so much that I just felt like, what am I doing here um, running and, and, and with this, this party that's saying to me that they get to pick and choose winners and losers in a primary? You... A, a Democratic club is not supposed to endorse in a primary election, yet you had club presidents out there promoting uh, Lauren Book. You had them doing walks. I, you know, I feel like if you're in a, a, a primary election in the Democratic Party, you should be neutral until that primary is over. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what our rules dictate. But that's not what happened in my primary. Well, it definitely didn't happen in mine. So um, I understand what that feels like. But the only thing is, like, for us, we were expecting that. I knew that was going to happen. Like, I saw the writing on the wall a long time ago and how the party operates and stuff. But it's I, I'm very surprised that they pulled that your, with you. Your circumstance, I mean, granted, Jen has plenty of experience, maybe not electoral experience, but, you know, you were on the legal team for John Kelly. I, and, well, I'd like and, to think that a term of service yeah. can be done by a variety of different people. Yes, but, yeah. you know. But, you know, Wasserman Schultz obviously runs. I mean, I, I, I still believe Wasserman Schultz runs the Florida Democratic Party, but I digress. Um, you have these, um, you know, you're, you're going to have these clubs that are going to do what they're going to do. But your circumstance, more so than Jen's, is completely egregious. Yes. You were the mayor of Broward County. Right. You should like, history not, of public service. Yeah. You're not, you're not just somebody who didn't have like a significant amount of public service. And she was there first. 
Correct. That's the other thing. I didn't necessarily realize that. I mean, I knew there was redistricting and I knew that the numbers switch, but like Lauren was mine before. So now I just figured that that was like the incumbency. It really does. And I, and I would really like to get your opinion on this because again, like you said, you know, you, you, um, you, everyone said you paid your dues, you know, you won elections, you did what you had to do. You had a right to make a, a fair shot yeah. at being able to win this Senate seat. Yeah. Uh, but does it say a lot about sort of the underlings, if you will, the the, the party uh, lifers that are there? I have no doubt you probably experienced it quite often where they would probably even come up to you and say, I don't think what they're doing to you is right. I'm going to vote for you, but I can't say anything publicly about <laughs> The quiet support is the one that kills you, right? Mm. I, you know, and everybody else is being loud as hell doing what they're doing and then everybody's like tiptoeing around and the, the amount of fear that there was i you know i just think of this is a, not my job this is something i love to do because i like helping people so i'm very passionate about politics in that i found a way to give something back to my community like I'm not doing this for a paycheck. I spend my own money. I actually self-funded this race and I self-funded plenty of others that I ran for. But I do it because I want to help people. And I saw what I, difference I made on the county commission and on the city commission. There's things that I did and put in place that are still being done today. And I'm not just talking about in this county. I'm talking statewide and nationally. You know, I sat on um, review boards uh, to to review the policies on people keeping their health insurance when they're incarcerated, um, civil citation programs, juvenile justice programs, homeless continuum of care programs, water resources, trying to replace our infrastructure. I'm the one that requested funding for the CNSF study to replace our aging water infrastructure. And then you know, sitting on transportation. I spearheaded the transportation surtax. We passed that on the second try um, when we took it out and did it on, on our own at the county. That was something I thought about as mayor and everybody said, oh no, you can't say tax. You can't say surtax. People are going to vote you out of office. And I said, but how else are we going to pay for it? We can't, we're not getting money from the uh, state. We're not getting money from the federal government. And we have roads and buses and traffic signalization. We had stuff that needed to be replaced and it was common, a common sense approach to it. You know, um, as mayor going through the hurricanes and um, a mass shooting at the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport. Right. And then I feel like the most egregious thing that I went through this campaign cycle, which I actually made a 60 second commercial about, was that Lauren Book's team decided to send out a mailer, Photoshop my picture from a gun buyback program on it and tell people that I was supporting putting guns on the street. Yeah, you know, it's it's so <laughs> and I will tell you this, though, a lot of people just from when we talk to people when we're canvassing are really sick and tired of the negative campaigning and they're sick and tired of the ads and they will purposefully not vote in that direction. Like people are really tired of not hearing what are you doing? Stop telling talking trash 
about somebody else. What are you doing? Um, I just wanted to say something while you're talking about like water and municipal services. So um, I'm very interested in this idea of municipal rainwater harvesting. And I don't understand why we're not having municipal rainwater harvesting because we have so much rainwater. It slides down 595 like a waterfall. And I just feel like we could be siphoning that at every intersection. You know what? Uh, we can't even get rainwater reservoirs right to move the stormwater throughout our system in the state of Florida to make sure that we protect our drinking water from stagnation and algae blooms. We so can't how do we do that? Who do we need to talk to about this? We have to fund water resource projects. We got to fund the South Florida Water Management District at 100%. We got to go back and get the CNSF study done. We have to make sure that the water flows from the north down to the south the way that it's supposed to. And then we can add on extra stuff like that. But we can't, there's no way to even do this when, look, it rains down here. You know where the rain reservoir pond is? It's my front yard yeah. where three and a half feet worth of water set. And I was trapped for four days in my house. I mean, that's what I mean, happened. Not able to do better, but what's amazing to me yeah. is that despite all of these infrastructure issues, the development never stops. It's they keep building and we can't accommodate the people that are already here. And I definitely don't see people like Lauren Book out there fighting in terms of like our drinking supply. I haven't seen her do anything about our drinking supply. Um, Nothing more than a diaper tax. But, yeah. um, you know, look, we got blasting issues, destroying our houses in Western Miramar and Western Pembroke Pines. Nobody does anything about that, but they can accept dollars and money um, into their campaign accounts and into our state, our coffers for Senate from these people that are destroying people's lives. You know, we, we I've been going up to Tallahassee about that for years. My house is being destroyed along with my neighbors, but nobody talks about that. You know, we've got uh, huge transportation issues out west. The development doesn't stop. Someone came up to me at my uh, one of my um, community meetings and said, how come you all have to keep widening the roads? And I was like, we've got so many cars on the road during rush hour, so many cars on the road in the morning and the night. And then we, build, we built a bypass road to take 4,000 cars off of Miramar Parkway and Pines Boulevard. And then we ended up with three more developments, 1,500 houses or more. So how, am I, how are we supposed to keep up with that population growth? And then we have an affordable housing issue that nobody seems to be worried about. Everybody right. talking about it. But they're That's not- That's a crisis. It's a housing crisis. Right. And so- and then, oh, then, by the way, we have $385 million that was given to us by the federal government that hasn't made its way down here to local governments to help people who need housing assistance. And so we've got all these issues going on. And, and at the same time, um, we have primary elections where people are hurting so bad and disenfranchised that they have no want or desire to go out and vote. You, when you yeah. have, I mean, think about that. We have eight cities in Broward County that are included in District 35 right now. 
and less than 60,000 people decided who the state senator for this district is going to be. Yeah. Um, Well, this is a thing with closed primaries and gerrymandered districts. Like I look at our congressional district and I know that if we had open primaries, she would have been gone 10 years ago easily. But because they get to be so insulated, it's really this sick, insulated fiefdom that they've created. And it's not serving the people at large. And that actually... Yeah, go ahead, Peter. No, what I was going to say, Barb, is, uh, you know, the other, you know, you bring up a really great point. You had 60,000 people that ended up voting, and yet one of the candidates in the race decided to spend $5 million. Uh, That doesn't really sound like money well spent, but this is actually a good uh, segue into what we believe is the biggest issue in politics today, which, of course, is corporate money, uh, corporate special interest money's influence over our political system. Uh, Look. I know some of our friends and people that, you know, we rub elbows with are going to hear this, but uh, let's just keep it real. Lauren Book is only in the Senate because of her father. That is a fact. There is no denying it. Um, Ron Book is an extremely powerful corporate lobbyist. Um, There is no question that a lot of that money that flowed into her coffers were either done directly by her father or by corporate special interests that are involved with him to ensure that her seat was protected. Uh, Would you agree that corporate special interest money in our political arena is one of the biggest, if not the biggest issue of our time? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, when I uh, opened up my mail and I'm getting seven mailers about me from a ghost pack yeah. And then we look at the financials of that ghost pack and they have no contributions and expenditures. How do you produce seven pieces of negative mail if you have no contributions and expenditures? And that that was just the tip of the iceberg here. You know, um, when we talked about like, you know, how much money was dumped in this race. Look at the state Senate. They took and they did this three pack stuff where they put a Lauren Book commercial on and had three little dots that said Chevron Jones, Janelle Perez, and somebody else, right? And then the the money that was spent from uh, the special interest groups and put into my race was ridiculous. But what I thought was even more ridiculous is the fact that public schools were cut by $70 million this year in the state budget. Well, Lauren's personal charity was funded out of the same budget item that the school system was supposed to be funded from. And it has been for the last five years. So she's gotten $11 million from the school system budget for a personal charity. Now, look, here's the deal. If you can afford to put $5 million in a race to run against me, Go volunteer and put that money in your charity and let the kids for the public school system have that other money. That's what I was saying. And, you know, I was attacked about saying that, but that's the truth. Tax dollars need to go to the kids in public schools, not to somebody's personal charity. That's what all of this was about, is maintaining their feeding off the public trough. And let me just I told them from the beginning, I'm not scared of them. The threat. No, you know what? And good for you. And I, I feel the same way about those kinds of people. I'm not scared of them either. Wow. And, and it's, you know, these are people that are just basically bullies and they're bullies right. by they just buy the system so that it just keeps churning money for them and their friends. 
And it, it works often. It works. But slowly but surely, I do think that that's not going to be working for much longer. I think that we're seeing people breaking through that are non-corporate. And I think that the more we educate people that this is what's going on, that you will slowly but surely see um, progress happening in this arena. Yeah, we need to be working together. That's a... Uh, absolutely, you know, absolutely. That is very essential. And I, I do I, think... Yeah, no, Peter... Please. Uh, I think that, um, you know, when I look look back at this, you know, look, there was 25,000 people that came out and checked Sharif. Okay, so I'm not I'm not upset about the fact, you know, I I don't think I did a bad job. I don't think that I'm not a good candidate because I think that's what they were trying to portray. I think that they dumped a ton of money in this race to ensure the outcome that they wanted. And in the and, and and. ram this train down people's throats. This type of campaigning, the negative campaigning that was done, it is a form of voter suppression. And here's what it did. Great. For black people and brown people who wanted to vote for me, they wanted to give them a reason to stay home. They didn't necessarily need the vote. They would take it if they came out. But by, by muddying the waters and destroying their candidate, they were able to suppress the vote and they were effective at doing it because they ran an ad continuously, which they're being sued for. But they said, look, we're going to count the cost later. We're going to run this ad. We're going to destroy her, put doubt in people's minds, suppress the vote and win. And that's exactly what they did. But this is something this is a tactic that's been used nationwide. Yeah. So what are you what's next for you now? Like, where do you go from this? You know, it's been such a short period of time. I I can't really tell you all where I go, but I'm going to continue to be involved in the community. I think one of my biggest issues as a healthcare provider for 30 years is that healthcare has been broken. It's not being fixed. And there's people at the table who have no idea what goes on in healthcare and what we need to fix. And they're, they're, they're making these decisions that don't help us. We have an aging population in Florida, and I want to continue to work on that. Homelessness is a huge issue. We are seeing an increase in home in our homeless population of families now because of COVID. And uh, that's something that I'm going to continue to work on. I've been working with Feeding South Florida for many years. Um, I think education is, is really important. Um, I have three girls who went to public school. Um, two of which graduated from college already. And um, my little one uh, who was in public school online for two years because of COVID, her math scores dropped. And I want to improve the public um, school system. And so I'm going to be working on that. I think my initial involvement in uh, politics came from being a concerned parent and a concerned community leader and activist, and I'm going to continue to do that. Um, so I probably, uh, you know, who knows what I'll be doing as far as running for office in the future, but I'm going to continue to remain involved in my community. Well, I look forward to like meeting up with you at some point and, you know, definitely keep us in mind, keep us posted when you have certain projects or certain things, because we generally like to be doing service. And now Miramar is fortuitously in our district. So um, I feel like we should definitely cross paths um, doing service. 
Absolutely. And I think the biggest service that we can do together is to educate voters on the importance of primaries. I because, could, not, could not have said that better. Yeah. And, uh, there's a reason why our mutual friend Jay Schwartz uh, speaks so highly of you, um, really thinks the world of you and what you've done. Um, you carry yourself with a dignity and grace that is um, not easy to do, especially at times like this, where you've given so much of yourself, so much of your life to serve the constituents of this area. And let's be honest, serve the Democratic Party. And when it came time for you uh, to do what wasn't in line with what the hierarchy wanted, they chewed you up and spit you out like your service didn't mean anything. And so from our perspective, your service means a lot. Thank you for working in healthcare. It's yes. the most trying industry um, to work in in the United States. Um, it is essentially broken in almost every way. Yeah. Um, but we are working together to make it better. And we certainly, again, uh, we have no doubt we will see you out there. And yeah, let's definitely, uh, as Jen likes to say, cross-pollinate. We'll cross-pollinate. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And just so you know, I read your website before I got on this podcast. And I was like, wait a minute, is this my website? <laughs> <laughs> we have so many things in common. Yeah. Um, it's it's really, I, I was like so shocked about that because I, I had no idea you know, and so uh, it's my because we were so heavily suppressed and ghosted that the party did everything they could to pretend that there wasn't a primary happening when there was. Mm -hmm. And we would actually I mean, it was crazy. They would host forums for every single category except mine. They would actually have candidates. Come on, and then they would just pretend it wasn't even happening. And it was just it so ridiculous. It wasn't it was insane where um, I we had this uh, League of Women Voters uh, candidate uh, was supposed to be a candidate forum. And um, she kept saying no, that she wasn't available. I mean, like the entire month of July into August. Yeah. And I finally said, hey, can I just get a chance to talk to people? And they're like, no, 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 that's not fair. Um, I just think that if, if a candidate can't make time to talk to your set of people, then you should allow all ca the candidate that is available to speak. Um, if, and, you, and I, if you can't make the time to speak to your constituency, then you don't deserve. To now, speak. I will say, though, that the League of Women Voters doesn't get involved in primaries and they're and they're nonpartisan. And that's one of their I am a member of the League of Women Voters. And so no, and they, they, just, they were just letting us talk. They said they were just going to let us talk, not a, a debate. Yeah. but right, a right, right. And she couldn't do that. So I couldn't go on. I thought, well, I want that exposure to. Right. So, I yeah, guess it have been. Well, if Lauren doesn't want to speak, then you have every right. Well, this is why we never got any sort of things is because Debbie never wanted to talk. She never wanted to be in a panel discussion with me. She never wanted to attend an event. And so she would just shut the whole thing down. So there would never be events because she didn't yeah. want to do that. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, and, and again, um, hate to call her out, but, you know, I, I, you know, hi, Karen. Uh, but unfortunately, Karen Fortman, the problem with Karen Fortman is simply this. It wouldn't be one thing bad enough if you're ahead of the, you know, Davy Cooper City Democrats. Right. She's the head of every Democratic club and caucus in the county. And she is extremely close with both Debbie and Lauren and has moved heaven and earth to make sure that they are never challenged. And if they are, we will suppress it to no end because 
we make the rules. Yeah. Well, they may make them now, but the more people start to coalesce together, the less effective that type of strategy is going to work in the future. We're I really on to you, that. people. Yeah. <laughs> We're on to you. Barbara, if there's anything that you want to plug before you go, please let uh, anybody know if there's a, a website or anything that uh, regarding <laughs> your work that you want anybody to check out, by all means, please share. Well, one, I want to say this. Uh, that same person that you talked about was parked at the Davy Cooper City Library with a big sign, oh, yeah. the Lauren Book, and then had the Davy Cooper City Democratic Club mm-hmm. on there, which is the biggest violation of all. Yes. You're not oh, supposed to do that. Um, I had the Pembroke Pines Democratic Club do it. Um, I had the Miramar Democratic Club do it. And let me tell you something. Uh, I'm, I am a member of this community and a Democrat, and I got to tell you how that looked and how it made me feel about the party that I represent. Um, I cannot to express to you enough how disgusted I was with them. These are people that were doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing, and then everybody just turned a blind eye to it and were like, oh, they're not supposed to do that. But no. every single day they were out there doing it. Um I can only say this, that, you know, uh, it's not going to detour me from doing what I want to do in the future. It's not going to stop me from being who I am. Um, It doesn't scare me at all. I'm not afraid to challenge the status quo because that's the only way change occurs. And you know what? When I was elected to the county commission, people kept telling me to stop talking, be quiet. You know, you can't go in there and be new and change things. Well, guess what? I stopped the red light cameras from coming into Broward County. Mm-hmm. I um, fed um, hundreds of thousands of people through the Feeding um, South Florida initiative. Um, I, cha- I got civil citation, implemented the surtax. I did a lot of things by having a big mouth and, and not shutting up. And um, I just, you know, I feel like, you know, we need to stop this nonsense of trying to be quiet and tiptoe around people because they've been around or they have money. Oh my God, if I can only tell you how many phone calls I got when Lauren Book decided to run in this district and people were saying, well, she's got money. She's got money. And I said, mm, I got a few of those too. It's like the fix is just so in and it's, you know, granted some communities are worse than others. And Broward is very particularly like incestuous and insulated and it's really frustrating. And it really is lending itself to the demise of the party because you're not going to get enthusiasm from voters. You are not going to get out the vote when you hand people and you spoon feed them a candidate. But now it's becoming more exposed in a way that it never has before. And when people see the corruption blatantly in their face, they don't like it. Yeah, I voted for you. I voted for you primarily, if not because that really pisses me off when they do that. I don't appreciate that. And I will always vote against that no matter what it is. Honestly, I will. Because and think about it this way. How scared they must be of you. Like how scared they must be because to spend that much money, you know, keeping you out is speaks volumes, I think. Yeah, it doesn't just but but it's not only that. It's the it's the audacity, 
Listen, spending over a million dollars on a state Senate race is obscene, it, <laughs> but you make it five million dollars. And Barbara, we hope that you will come back because yeah. this the, the, the other conversation we are going to need to have, because we've obviously had a great one this evening. The corporate consultant class within the Democratic Party is a really, really big it's problem. A problem. And people want to get people want to get paid. We know that. But the obscene amount of money that these campaigns, these campaign consultants make. And here's the big difference. And I know you know this. The big difference between the campaign consultants in the Democratic Party versus the Republican Party in the Republican Party. You can make whatever amount of money you want. You just have to win. You better win. If you don't win, you're out. In the Democratic <laughs> Party, you could be a 10-time loser, and they'll keep hiring you, which is unbelievable. <laughs> so needless to say, this type of stuff gets us fired up. We are so grateful that you came on, and we're grateful for your service to Broward. We need thank more you. people like you, and let's keep this conversation going. Thanks, Barbara. Well, thank you all. It was great to talk to you. and. Um, Yes, let's keep it going. Okay. Bye. Have a great evening. Bye. Bye-bye. Yes, you are correct, Mario. I will say she was lovely. Yes, she was. And again, never, ever judge a book by its Well, let me say this. When we ran, nobody yeah. cared as much, okay? No. And I really feel like to some extent with her, I feel like, welcome to the party, pal. Literally, welcome yep. to the party. Well, because- well, Barbara even admitted as much. You know that she, you know when you were running, there there was a there were there were a a a a, 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 a aspersions. Is it my saying? Why am I saying it wrong? Cast, they were casting aspersions about you that were not true. And again, we can only imagine the type of things that were being said behind closed doors. I'd uh, like to know. I'm just so curious. Well, one thing that we know for sure that Debbie was having her people say oh, is I that know. if Jen were, were to win the primary, that the seat would absolutely go red in the general election. And that was something that I know that they hammered home yeah. consistently. Yeah. But Jen was never really able to state her case. Now, like I said, in the case of Barbara, she ran for U.S. Congress in 2020 in the open primary seat that Alcee Hastings had uh, vacated due to his Which passing. is now Sheila Sherfulis McCormick. Correct. And l- let's be honest, even though it came down to Sheila and Dale Holness, Barbara finished in third, and it wasn't a distant third. She no. was only a handful of points behind. Right. So she was pretty close in her own right in terms of becoming a congressman. You know, we talk about it this way as if, her credentials and her credibility should really play into the choice of giving her a platform at all. And really it shouldn't. So the Democratic Party here, until they stop stop putting their fingers on or their thumb on the races for primaries, they are going to not have credibility. They really forfeit credibility and they really forfeit any enthusiasm and participation. But the more people that keep alienating people Keep alienating people. That's my message to all of you Dem Club presidents. And you just keep alienating people over and over and over again, because eventually there will be more of them than there are of you. Oh, yeah. And again, this is just (laughs) again, but this is a this is case in point that it's okay. Uh, It's case in point that we really stood alone in many ways. There were many lonely nights where you're like, wow, is everybody really in on all of this? Yes. But I can assure you that the difference, even right now, 
two years out from the next election cycle, the amount of difference that's been made in two years in terms of people opening their eyes to not just Debbie, but really the system at the micro level, as bad as it is at the macro level, it's really one and the same. They do the exact same thing. And as I would tell anybody, you know, I knew all about in the summer of 2015, the suppressive tactics they were already employing before anyone was paying attention against Bernie when he ran against Hillary. That is the same thing that they do here. They do the same thing. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's Broward is Broward is very much a microcosm of the national. So like what you saw on the national with Hillary is what we deal with at the micro level with Debbie. It's the same kind of like narcissistic fear mongering control of the party where everybody is scared in line and everybody is scared to say anything about it. So tactics work hand in glove. Because let's be honest, you think that the Republicans especially with the crazies don't interact with the Democrats and be like, well, as long as we're maintaining our fiefdom, hey, it's all good because the people on our side are going to vote for us. And if you scare the hell out of your side, they're going to vote for you. And there is going to be the status quo. The Republican clubs are infinitely different than the Democratic clubs. They are. And but here's the thing. Here's the rub with that. And I can only speak to the, the Republican clubs in Broward. And a Republican club in Broward is basically the same as like a Dem club in, you know, wherever other red county. So it's it's probably not their typical organization, but they don't have this infighting. They don't have this like this. They don't have ghosting candidates. They don't have ignoring candidates. They put their candidates all out there. They they want a good primary. I, I just don't. It's so frustrating. And I am so sick of the local hacks in Broward that think they're like political strategists. You know, like somebody actually thinks that she's some sort of like political mastermind strategist. Yet I haven't seen a single one of her candidates win. Well, like I said, it doesn't matter in the Democratic Party whether you win or lose. <laughs> no. and there's a reason why Republicans look at Democrats like they're losers, <laughs> because in many ways they are. And this whole idea that you cannot be forgiving in any way. Uh, again, uh, you never see them out in the community. And the people who are really out in the community, like a Barbara Sharif, you're never going to hear about it from the standpoint of, let me tell you how great I am and how much I am doing or how many. Again, it is very noteworthy when certain groups, the only time you're really going to see photographs on social media is when they're at a fancy event. Okay, so no. So here was this event that was like basically the Lauren Book victory party. And you essentially have. Uh, like all of the leadership of the Broward Dem Club organizations at this. And that would be fine if this were really their first time talking about Lauren Book. But the reality is they're all out there campaigning for her. Correct. And that's the problem. That's the problem. And part of the reason why, and I hate to say this, guys, but I really believe this. And again, we would have to find more information. But I got to tell you, knowing how her father operates, it wouldn't surprise me in the least if by supporting Lauren Book, these organizations got a lot of money. Well, that and then there's people that are just scared to cross. That's true. Too. Um, certain people, especially people with money. And then you also have like you were talking about the consultant class. So this was a campaign for a state Senate seat that spent five million dollars. I still I did. I, OK, I mean, so a chunk of that money that went to those consultant class people. They didn't care whether they win or lose. Like, they don't care. They're just making the paycheck Look, off of the campaign. I still think that that was a huge part of Nikki Fried's campaign. There's no question that Nikki Just people Fried, wanting that income. Well, well, of course. When you've got, you know, I mean, listen, Nikki Fried at one time was raising, you know, seven figures a month. Now, of course, that dwindled significantly. Has she been out now, like, basically 
in, like endorsing Charlie? Yeah, pretty much. But again, way to fall in line. It, it, it's not even about falling in line. It's oh, about it's the fact. It could I? It's about the fact that she had an opportunity two months earlier, when it was painfully obvious that Charlie was going to win the nomination. I said he would win it by twenty five points, and that's what he won it by. So when the numbers were clear that that's the direction it was heading in, and she could have dropped out, could have had a lot of cash on hand, had multiple options whether to uh, you know, help Charlie's campaign. She certainly had enough cash on hand to run for the open congressional seat here in the new District 23, which is, which is where she lives. But unfortunately, she chose otherwise uh, not to do that. And now what you have is a somewhat if not outright fractured party. And then on top of everything else, you have our Democratic nominee for governor, not even 12 hours after he has declared the winner, going on ABC and saying, I don't want DeSantis voters. I don't need DeSantis voters. They have evil in their heart. Okay, well, good luck. I mean, I would have wished you a lot of luck to begin with, but again... That's like, that's not as bad as Beto telling people he's coming for their guns, but it's pretty bad in terms of bad bad. politics. Yeah. You don't need DeSantis voters. You're not even going to get all the Democratic voters. Yeah. You need DeSantis voters because this is going to, this is fascinating. And I really think people underestimate where the political climate was back in 2018, how dynamic of a candidate Andrew Gillum really was and how much he excited so many people to get out to the polls And yeah, he lost by a very slim margin, and we still maintain he lost because of his ridiculous shift to the center. Um, Well, it was also dismissing his original staff. Yeah. He gave up his original primary campaign staff in lieu of an establishment Democrat D.C. Central consulting class staff. And And he still almost pulled it off. Almost. But that would have, I, I, look, he alienated the progressives and that was it. Yeah, he did. And then he did the stunt here in Broward with uh, Bloomberg and Debbie. So, yeah, I mean, again, um, you know, Charlie's been there and I know there's some familiarity, but I, I, again, economic populism, when you can really feel it in your bones, is really where this country's going right now. And the people on the GOP side believe that DeSantis is that guy. I don't know how many people on the left believe it's another round of Charlie Crist or Nikki Freed. The truth is the Florida Democratic Party is hurting immensely. And what they just did to somebody like Barbara Sharif, it's unforgivable. Like, it really is. This isn't just anybody. And let's be honest, ladies and gentlemen, this is a black woman, the most reliable voting bloc by a wide margin. in the For the Democratic Party, Party. right. And the fact that you went out there and not only insulted her in such a horrific way, you did it in favor of a elected official that people were already having some issues with regarding you know, her father. Now you just turn this into, all right, if that's how you feel, well, good luck in November. If this is why we can't get anywhere. And this is why the Democrats will continue to circle the drain in Florida until they sort of understand that they are such a small little niche group of people and they just keep alienating more and more people. But I still maintain that a lot of this just has to do with the neoliberal uh, capture of the Democratic Party and the desire to break away from it has become palatable at this point 
but they don't want to let it go. And they're willing to sink the ship in order to prevent it because for them, their tiny little fiefdoms, as they may seem, are very important to them. Remember, these things, a lot of these democratic clubs and caucuses, these are social clubs. This is the excuse to have a social life. And there are a lot of people that go to those that don't otherwise have a social life. Correct. And it's very important to them. And that's part of the reason why they don't want to rock the boat. It's not that they don't care. It's not they don't believe what's happening is wrong. It's that they don't see the exit strategy. They see it as we're trapped in this room and we can't get out of it. Offer us a way out, a legitimate way out, and we'll go. The same thing is the same thing exists in labor. Everything, for the most part, falls under the hub of one man in Broward County. And that's dangerous. In fact, the man who does control labor in Broward County runs it like a dictator. And everyone knows that he does. In fact, I got a phone call from a gentleman today who's considering running for office who is in a union. And one of the biggest reasons that he doesn't think he should do it is because of Dan Reynolds. That's scary-ish. It That's is. scary. It's really fascist, which is which is really interesting when you see that kind of thing. And it totally is coming from the labor community. But it isn't the labor community. It's the union boss community. It's Correct. a very different totally thing. Totally different thing. But so do you want to talk about... <laughs> like if you what, haven't already, as you guys know, we do it every show. Patreon.com forward slash generational change. Be patrons. It really makes a big difference. It helps. If you have are so inclined to support our cause... Whether it is supporting non-corporate candidates, whether it is like tomorrow afternoon, we are going to be volunteering our time at one of our favorite, if not if not our favorite nonprofit in Broward County, Mobile School Pantry. Back for this school year. Zena Wallen does a phenomenal job running an organization yeah. that provides, no disrespect to other organizations, but really healthy yeah. fruits and vegetables. Yeah. There are some unhealthy I items. mean, look, it's definitely a small group and that it's the people from that school and, and all that. Like it is sure. definitely a, not anybody can just show up and do that. But yeah, her organization is definitely really top in terms of people that you donate money there. It goes directly to food. It goes directly to food for people. Like there is no, there's no real administrative. In fact, the person who runs it needs administrative help and somehow refuses to get it. So point is the money all goes. It's us. We're the help. We're the help. But no, there's, no, she has a lot of good volunteers, but yeah. And we support those. Those are the kinds of organizations that we support, but. Beach cleanups, homeless care packages. Yeah. And if you are so inclined as a lot of people don't necessarily want to be committed on their credit card. You can go to Cash App, dollar sign, Gen Change. Yeah. Any amount matters. So if you are so inclined to give us a, a helping hand. And the truth is that a lot of the money from there goes towards helping us be able to pay some of the people that help us do this that we can not often afford to pay. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we try to do. Again, if we were taking a salary, then it would be a small one. I'm trying to get a salary out of something. Well, keep working hard. I'm working hard. I might get a job someday. So we have one final thing to mention before we go. Uh, thank you, Mario, if you can. Maybe some generational change. I know. I love it. It's good. Yeah. So. Okay. Wait, wait. Before we do that, I have to talk about the masterclass George W. Bush thing. Can we, did you see that he's teaching a masterclass? Yes, of course I did. Okay. So there's apparently this White House series of masterclass and I guess Hillary did one and Bill did one. And you look at this poster for this White House masterclass series. It's Bill and Hillary. It's George and W and Laura Bush. Wait, um, can we talk about this first before you do that? And then it's Madeleine Albright and Condoleezza Rice. These are the people. And I look at that and I'm like, with the exception of Laura Bush, should all be in prison. 
And and I'm looking at that and I'm thinking they're teaching that. And George W. Bush is teaching a master class on leadership, on leadership, I, like leadership the level of rehabilitation. Honestly, you could take a picture of Hitler. And I know people make the comparison lightly and I'm being very serious and put him on a poster that says master class in leadership. And I honestly would feel the same way about it. And I'm not saying that it's, I'm not like saying the same, but that's how ridiculous it is to me that we would be having somebody who should be incarcerated for war crimes, teaching a master class on leadership. Oh well, no. I gotta tell you, you know. Yeah. Taught, and, and, and this guy master, taught a master class. Well, I, taught, I don't even know what yours was on. Well, I taught a master class about how to uh, get away with crime and just say, I did not do it. <sighs> uh, that takes a lot of skill and trying to convince people that you are lying. Like I am not here. Uh, you know, again, they wanted to pay me. I, they said, hey, listen, Bill, how were you able to be so slick and get away with everything all those years? And I thought, well, <laughs> well, if you pay me the right amount, I might actually share some of them secrets. I can only share so much. But, you know, they uh, presented me with an offer I couldn't refuse. I decided, yeah, what the hell? I'll, uh, I'll let you know exactly how I was able to fool the American people into thinking I was some kind of economic populist when in reality I was just a neoliberal globalist. And, uh, <laughs> well, they kind of bought into it. Um, I would just like to remind people exactly of what I did as president of the United States with a filibuster-proof Senate supermajority for two years. Uh, it, it was really wonderful. You want to know what we passed, Jen? Do you know? Uh, we passed NAFTA. <laughs> <laughs> that little doozy right there was really great. Um, we passed the no, 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 not not the filibuster proof Senate. Oh, okay. Sorry. In the filibuster proof Senate, we actually passed the 1994 crime bill. Oh, nice. That was really great. That's great. Uh, we were able to convince a lot of people that if we just created more prisons and shoved more people in there, all the crime would go away. <laughs> In fact, it increased, but, uh, you know, you got to sell a project while you can. And we all have to get paid. Uh, then, of course, uh, you know, there was the 96 Telecom Act. Uh, <laughs> I basically created my own media empire known as MSNBC. Um, it was never a bad thing that could ever be said about us. And, uh, you know, the second they started getting out of line, like Ed Schultz and Phil Donahue, well, you know, they just kicked them right to the curb. So we, I'm glad you're here because Peter and I were about to do an endorsement. We, after this primary season, we think that it's important that we sure. get in line. I'm not finished yet. All right, finish I still up. Have two other major things that I did as president. You got to remember. Uh, so of course, as we move on, uh, in 1999, we passed Glass-Steagall, or excuse me, you repealed Glass-Steagall. Glass and you know what that did? That made a lot of people rich. And it broke a lot of people as well. Uh, so the investment banks were basically able to take over all the local banks. And uh, now you got to do your banking, in, you know, Bank of America and Wells Fargo and all those crooked places that unfortunately uh, take advantage of their customers. I'm like the uh, local community banks. Yeah, those things are gone now. And they, well, you can blame me for that because uh, now I saw to it to pass that law. It took a while, but hey, you know, everything goes full circle. And then finally, and maybe most importantly of all, in my last year as president of the United States, you know what we did? We had normal trade relations with China. Ain't that wonderful? It's great. We made sure to outsource all of your jobs to a part of the world where they have slave labor. Three cents on the dollar compared to the United States. Actually, we have that here. It's called prisons. That's, yeah, that's, that's right. yeah, we yeah, actually right. do that here. We actually have hey, slave labor. I, I was responsible for that yeah, one, too. I that's know. amazing that's the thing. President, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> hey, uh, I guess I really did leave quite the lasting legacy. Oh. <laughs> it is pretty impressive. But uh, if you think we're done yet, oh, no. 
Who do we got for 24, Jen? Okay, so this is the thing. You know, we want to get, Peter and I are going to get behind the whole vote blue thing, but we think that if you're going to vote for someone blue, that you should vote for whoever has the most power in the party. Well, I, I know who that is. Who I do mean, you think that bad. is? Oh, it's Joe Manchin. It's Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin. So we are, we are endorsing, ah. we endorse Manchin and Parliamentarian for 2024. And well, this well, is, well. and and we actually. I, I, I just I endorse it because I like the look of that lady over there. Yeah, I well, don't she, I don't even I don't know her name either. She's parliamentarian, but these. <laughs> she'll be part. Of, she'll, she'll be parting my. Yes, I'm sure. Hilarious, yeah, no, that's, that's just I, that's gross. But so actually, we will be selling. We are going to be selling Mansion Parliamentarian. Uh, bumper stickers and uh, those contributions we will put out and, and it will benefit generational change. Oh, but, that's, that's great. I think I could definitely get one for Hillary. She'll appreciate it. Uh, I just, I just think if you're going to, you know, have the person that it, it representing the party should be the person with the most power in the party. Yeah. And that's clearly these two. So, because oh. apparently they're more powerful than Joe. So then I think we should just Joe get in Luke? behind that. Exactly. So we should just oh. get in behind them. Well, I think it's a winning strategy. Um, the Democrats became Republicans because of me. So why not vote for the closest thing to one without the D instead of the R? And the, exactly. Cut out the middleman, man. Just, yeah, just go for the real thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I think you're doing after all. So it looks really good. I think I, I, I definitely endorse this message. It really works. Uh, so make sure you go out there and get yourself a nice bumper sticker that says Magic. Yep, they will be in stock four. soon, guys. Oh, and uh, yeah, I'm actually what I'm probably going to do is is get them for like, put them out as like Patreon merch. But yeah, this is what we're supporting now. That's my mission. That's a great idea. I'm getting behind Mansion Parliamentarian. I seriously. Remember, the only thing that matters is winning, no matter how far to the right and corporatized <laughs> you get, remember winning's everything. And that's something I did a lot of my day. I'm still winning today. I'm yeah. still convincing people that our way of thinking is better than, you know, that Bernie Sanders, uh, non-corporate politics of uh, labor support and all that. Mm. No, no, no. It's all about Wall Street and triangular. Do we have anything politics. else good coming up? Can you yeah, go? We do. Can all you right. please well, go? I stayed in my case. Can you I'll just go? On. We've lost like 10 people since you brought that. They're dwindling. So by the on Wednesday, we have Jen's best friend coming on, Steve Grumbine, who's going to be talking about some very important issues related to how exactly. MMT works regarding Social Security. So there's been a lot of misnomers going around regarding this very important topic. And who better to come on and talk about it than Mr. Macro and Cheese podcaster from The Real Progressives himself. Uh, he is the man. We all know it. And we'll be graced with his presence as well. There will also be some other candidates who will be coming on. Uh, Labor Day will be coming up. We'll talk about that. We have candidates, really? Yeah, you know, general election. Different people. We're a little far out now. Maybe so. It's a little see. far. We'll, uh, we'll make it work. Yeah. You think Charlie wants to come on? You never know. Got to get every last vote you can. I just honestly, <clears throat> I don't I don't know. I mean, that kind of violates our not platforming corporate candidates rule anyway. Well, so there is, is that. He is the gubernatorial candidate. So, so therefore, we good. should abandon all principle. All right. Yeah. Uh, I guess we shouldn't have him on then, I guess. <clears throat> well, I don't think he'd come on anyway. Maybe but not. I don't think he'd come on anyway, but now might be an opportunity to get Nikki on because now she's probably going for a bargain rate. 
might be able to get Nikki to come on. Yeah, no, Charlie. I think we just, I think you need to stop being so bitter sometimes and just accept the fact that there are people that are going to come around no matter how long it oh, takes. Not, like, no, no, no. It's not, it's not better at all. I never even thought we reached out. I don't care one way or the other. No. I'm joking. I just think it's funny that people are so easily able to turn around and promote somebody who was like just previously trash talking them. I think you just have to accept the fact that there are people that are going to give you a hard time and not do the right thing, even though deep down they know what the right thing is. What's the right thing? Finding the courage to recognize that massive infrastructural systemic change in Florida politics, particularly Southeast Florida politics. It's bad. Is essential and must happen. And I have to say, I have a feeling the Democratic Party is going to rue the day they messed with Barbara Sharif. So with that I mean, said, it just isn't smart. I think a lot of them just don't have long term thought. No, they don't. But then again, who are we dealing with? Some oh. people are just pulling the levers of power now. But you know what? That could change. In the meantime, Wednesday, 7 p.m. Because Steve has and because Steve has little little people in his house, so he's got to be a he's got to be a papa yeah. and take responsibility. So, with that said, we appreciate you guys. Hope you enjoyed. Make sure you like, subscribe, click the bell, comment, do whatever you got to do to make the show. Do more. all of it. It really makes a difference. Thank you so much. Bye. I'll all. see you Wednesday. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.